Hey friends, Dan here. Thanks as always for listening. I cannot wait to get to our interview with good friend of the show, Justin McCord from the RKD Group, who will be making his second appearance on the podcast. Uh, Just want to cue it up for you real quick. We're going to be talking about the RKD Group's brand new study, The Nonprofit Marketer's Guide to Generation X. There's a link to the report at the very top of the show notes, and I certainly recommend if you're watching this or listening to this at your desk that you download the report very quickly and follow along with us because there's a lot of visual aids that will drive home a lot of the data points that we're going to be talking about. And it's just a, a really fascinating, fascinating and I think groundbreaking report in general. It caught my attention as soon as it came out a couple of weeks ago because uh, there is so much data and so many studies in the industry about getting younger with donors, finding millennial and even Generation Z donors, cultivating the next great generation of, of, of givers. Um, and of course, there's a lot of emphasis, as you would expect, on baby boomers and the silent generation and how to maximize our relationship with older donors, but not a lot about Generation X. But as you're going to find out in this interview and in RKD Group's report, um, that could be a very costly oversight. So um, this study was fun for me to talk about because it's a very meta thing for me um, being part of that generation. But it's also, I think, really transformative information for nonprofits. We go through all the data, um, the different giving habits of Generation X compared to um, other generations. Um, But we also talk about a lot of actionable advice about how to take this information and um, alter your messaging as a way not to replace what you're doing um, in appealing to older donors, but as a way to expand the edge of the envelope and maybe um, reach out and resonate with Generation X donors who you're not currently getting with your uh, current fundraising methods. Um, Really interesting interview all around, tons of valuable advice. I really think you're going to get value out of this. And again, um, I can't recommend enough. Uh, Take a second now, download the report and watch along as we talk about it. We go from top to bottom, going through all the categories. I don't think you'll regret it. And it will probably change the way that you think about fundraising and how to incorporate Generation X into your fundraisers. So hope you enjoy my interview with Justin McCord. Thanks, as always, for listening to the Dynamic Nonprofits podcast and for supporting our mission to provide value to the nonprofit sector. And now we're thrilled to welcome back a very good friend of the show, Justin McCord, who's VP of Smarketing over at the RKD Group. And we're going to talk about uh, their very exciting and groundbreaking uh, nonprofit marketer's guide to Generation X. So this is uh, very meta for me, and I'm very excited to talk about it. And there was a lot in here that I learned, and uh, we're going to bring him in right now. Justin, how are you doing today? And I... Uh... I'm, I'm great, man. And it, it's so good to, one, be back on the show. As you know, I'm just a, a huge fan of the content that, that you put out and, um, and thrilled to, to talk about this. It's been a passion project uh, for a number of the members of our team. And I think it's because of, as you said, the meta aspect. You know, when you, when you feel like you get a moment to kind of focus in on your, your peers and, and really understand where you fit in the larger nonprofit space as a, 
uh, donor. Um, it's, uh, yeah, you just learn so much about it. And so excited to talk with you about it today. And besides the meta aspect of it, I, I, it jumped out to me because we spend so much time as an industry, understandably talking about baby boomers and the donors who are left from the silent generation and how to reach younger donors, millennial, Gen Z, but um, Generation X somehow it seems to get left out of that conversation. And as we're going to dig into, uh, that's probably um, a major oversight uh, for nonprofit organizations. But would you mind kind of taking us back through the origins of the stu study? Um, why did you uh, why did you all at RKD Group, why did you think that this was something that was important to produce and, and what did you hope to get out of it? Yeah, I'm more than happy to. So it starts with exactly what you just said, the, the forgotten aspect. And so there's a little bit of kismet when you really think through it. Gen X is the forgotten generation. Like from a marketing standpoint, uh, in the commercial space, which the commercial space tends to be a couple years out in front of the nonprofit space, and there has been such a thrust around the millennials in the last handful of years because of the, the sheer size of millennials, right? Entering into the workforce and, and wrestling with what does that mean for our workplace dynamics, wrestling with what does that mean for their consumer uh, potential and, and you know what they can contribute economically and how do we market to them and always trying to get younger and younger and younger. And so nonprofit marketers likewise have a strong base of direct mail donors that are baby boomer and silent generation, of event donors that are baby boomer and silent generation, of planned giving and legacy donors that are silent generation and, and so on and so forth, and tend to then steer towards this millennial audience of how do we capture the next donor? And so we look ahead to that millennial audience and think about you know all the walk-run aspects and ways to get them involved in peer-to-peer -peer and um, the, the irony or the kismet that, that I pointed out is that Gen X is uh, the latchkey generation. They're the middle child. And so they're, they're overlooked. And, uh, and so the origin of the study was uh, our team wrestling with that aspect and trying to figure out where does Gen X fit in, in all of this. And so we, uh, we, we worked closely with McQueen Mackin Associates, who we've done a handful of research projects with, uh, led by... Uh, Mary Jervik and, and Josh McQueen, both uh, brilliant market researchers. And uh, so we put a study into, uh, into the market in March of 2020, just ahead. And I mean like an earshot ahead of uh, the pandemic really impacting the, the U.S. Uh, and we looked at a survey of 2,000 U.S.-based donors and people who gave at least $100 in, in the previous calendar year. So that would be people who gave in, in 2019. We controlled for gender. So we were split 50% men, 50% women. We controlled for age so that we had a third millennials, a third Gen X and a third boomers. And then we controlled for uh, education, race, ethnicity so that we could really understand what are the nuances of boomers, of millennials, and then focus directly in on Gen X and what makes them tick philanthropically. And um, I'll, I'll remind listeners that uh, we did include a link to the study in the show notes. So if you want to take a second, pause the podcast, go ahead and, down, uh, and download it. Um, we're going to go uh, from top to bottom down the study and through those different categories if you want to watch along with us. And um, 
starting at the top, one of the foundational points of this is that you took a very interesting approach and that you actually split generation X into essentially two different sub generations. Um, was that something that you um, decided you were going to do from the onset? Or was that something that you discovered when you started digging into the data for the study? And why do you think it's so important to separate generation X into these two categories when you're, um, when you're looking at them for fundraising? You know, Dan, I think it's the most compelling, for me, it's the most compelling overarching finding from the survey. So we didn't go into it assuming that that would be the case. We learned it after we saw the, the response. And so that subset, there's two different groups. There's an older Gen X and a younger Gen X. And so the older Gen X is born between 1965 and 1973. The younger Gen X is born 74 to 83, right? So you've got this split within there and there's all sorts of juicy strategic things that you can look at in terms of the older and the younger. Uh, but what's so interesting and why I felt like this was important to elevate as the, the top finding is that there's a line that runs through the middle of Gen X that coincides with the rise of the internet. And so for, you know, for the older Gen X, they vividly remember life before that cantankerous sound of connecting a modem through AOL, right? Uh, they remember payphones vividly and, and use payphones. Um, my, you know, my sister uh, fits into that. Uh, she's just on the cusp of that older Gen X, very close into that older Gen X. And so, you know, uh, you know, she, she had a, a turquoise Grand Am, uh, was her first car and, and she had a bag phone and, uh, as her first mobile phone that looked like a laptop bag and had this huge magnetic antenna that she put on top of her car, uh, to get reception. And so there are these things that, uh, that, you know, that align with that older, older Gen X versus the younger Gen X that is a little more, um, robust in their tech savviness because of the prevalence of the internet and of computers in their lives. So that younger Gen X is really more of what you may have heard as the Oregon Trail generation, right? That they're used to, they, they remember floppy disks and used floppy disks all the way through college, uh, but then immediately jumped into other, other forms of, of data storage, et cetera. So, so that line uh, becomes... Um, a North Star for understanding behaviors between the, the different groups within Gen X. Makes a ton of sense. And uh, I laughed when you mentioned about payphones that uh, kids today will never know, uh, the, will never understand or fully appreciate the experience of uh, needing to have change to call their parents from a payphone. Or if you didn't have change, yeah. calling collect right. and then saying, mom, pick me up <laughs> when you left your name on the collect call. I mean, it is interesting right. to see these things that divide the generations yeah. and these cultural references. Um, but digging into the data here, um, I think the first thing that jumps out to me is that uh, you have a chart here that uh, shows the percentage of household income to charitable giving. Now on the surface, it appears like baby boomers are the most generation, uh, generous generation of the four that you have broken out. But when you actually take into account the household income, um, it's actually the younger Gen Xers that are uh, giving the most to charities. Was that a surprising finding for you? 
So I, I think that there's there's two points that I would make there, Dan. One is I was surprised at the equity across all generations. So perception is is the root of all sorts of marketing uh, evils, right? Just the assumptions that we make that aren't fact-based. And so what our study showed, again, this is amongst donors that have given at least $100 within an annual calendar year. There's equity across millennials and younger and older Gen X and boomers in terms of roughly the percentage that they give. Uh, and, and then you start to break out, okay, but within the annual household income, how does that factor in? And so I was surprised somewhat at the younger Gen X, again, that Oregon Trail generation, being maybe slightly more charitable or along the same lines of being charitable as baby boomers. Now, something that I will correlate from previous work that we've done with uh, McQueen Mac and Associates is you have to keep in mind that with every generation, the number of causes that they support tend to increase, right? So that's something that we've, we've known and talked about for years and something that we also looked at here uh, in terms of the, the number uh, of, of causes. Uh, so you're increasing the number of causes. So therefore your, your per cause support tends to come down a little bit as you get younger, but you're going wider and wider with the number of causes. Now think about in our own lives, Dan, uh, and you and I are, are, are roughly the same age, you know, the rise of peer to peer giving that we see in Facebook birthdays and, and GoFundMes, which which may not be philanthropic, but it's giving, right? And so that's where you start to unpack how does this factor in that millennials and younger Gen X are very philanthropic. They, they're not always giving to pure 501c3. Sometimes they're giving to friends, sometimes they're giving to other community-based causes, uh, but they're extremely philanthropic as a percentage of their household income. Absolutely. And um, if you're not looking along at home, um, younger Generation X has the highest annual household income of those four groups, 70, a little over $75,000, which was initially surprising to me, but less so if you take a step back and you think about the growth of uh, or the pro proliferation of college among people that are in our generation, that younger edge of uh, Generation X, um, and also where they are in their lives. They're entering their prime earning years. And as you talk about in this report, um, baby boomers, in terms from an income standpoint and disposable everyday income, are retiring. So they're starting to have less disposable income. And that's an interesting way to look at it because you don't necessarily make that assumption. But um, when you're talking about both older, but particularly younger Gen Xers, you're talking about um, donors who are philanthropic, who are giving in all kinds of different ways, whether or not they're things that are, you know, we would tr traditional donations to charity, um, but also have more disposable income, which, which really kind of opens your eyes uh, for causes of all types that this is a generation that you really need to be looking at if you're not currently reaching out to. Yeah, absolutely. So your next section here uh, goes into the types of causes uh, that uh, generations uh, support. Um, uh, there's a couple categories which we can dig into here, but at a high level, was there anything here that surprised you or that you found revealing about the differences between Gen X or how they compare to other generations and their giving habits? 
Yeah, so I'm going to make a broad-based generalization, which is dangerous, I'll admit. Um, but the, the definition of purpose and connection changes amongst the generations, right? And so there is uh, the, the younger that you get, there's a deeper affinity for impact, a deeper affinity for more global uh, perception, and also a deeper connection to community-based causes, things that they can immediately see where the either the dollar is going or the payoff for the donation. So, you know, for instance, you you know uh, the you you would have a, a lessening effect uh, based off of our study, younger generations being less inclined. Uh, millennials in particular around faith-based, faith-specific causes. There's all sorts of studies that go into, you know, the, the role of, of faith and philanthropy and, and how that plays in. And there's still a very strong body of donors that contribute to faith-based causes. You do see that there's a, a fall-off that is natural that, you know, um, you know 66% of boomers support faith-based causes versus 22% of millennials. Now, does that mean that our faith-based nonprofits are at risk? No, I don't believe that it is because I do believe that there is a strong evolution in giving in the way that people support. And you've also seen many organizations that are faith-based over the last few years think more dynamically about where donations are going and how programs are set up so that they can speak to purpose and speak to impact in a way that connects with a younger donor base. Uh, so faith-based is one that I find to be very, very interesting. Separate within faith-based, by the way, places of worship from faith-based ministries and missions. Um, now, uh, another one that I find to be interesting, which is on the opposite end of the chart, if, if folks are following along at home, is, uh, is the community human services area. So community human services, uh, that's unlike a food bank right? Uh, that would be more like a social service program within a community. Might provide education resources uh, to help those in need. Uh, might provide some level of, you know, homeless services or life transformation services for uh, the impoverished within your community. Millennials uh, support community human services at a rate of 64%, right? Younger Gen X at a rate of 21%, older Gen X at 7% and boomers at 6%. So this really interesting pendulum of the role of faith in philanthropy and the role of community impact in philanthropy that shifts amongst the generations. And that to me was one of the, the, uh, the broad-based takeaways that I found to be so interesting amongst the, the findings. Yeah, I, I noticed that as well. It jumped out to me. Um, I, I think it's really interesting looking at the community uh, human services uh, category, just how much uh, the millennials out index the other, um, the other uh, generations. Um, and by the same note, um, how they are lagging other generations on faith specific. There's also a fairly significant divide there between older and younger uh, Gen Xers, which I think probably correlates to all the studies that we see about the decline of religiosity. Um, so that, you know, if you're an organization in those categories, you can see the challenges that are ahead. In some cases, something that jumped out to me though is, um, 
I think in the case of um, of community centric fundraising, it makes sense that the demographics are aligning with the political moment, and it, and it it just intuitively makes sense that that would be a category that right now is dominated by younger donors. But some of these, I wonder if it's a function of how that category is traditionally fundraised. So I look at something like veteran support. The top ranking um, the top ranking uh, generations are. Uh, baby boomers and older Gen X, which are very close. And then it starts to trail off from there. And it, we could talk, there could be cultural, political reasons for that. Or it could be that that's a category which traditionally has been heavily invested, has done very well in direct mail, and maybe just is not reaching the donors who have an affinity for veteran related causes. Um, if you're in uh, a category like that, where you see that there's uh, seemingly less affinity with younger donors, how would you start thinking about that as a nonprofit, as a way to to try to engage those younger generations, whether they are younger Gen Xers or or millennials? Because in some cases, I think it may be more of a messaging gap than it is an interest gap. I completely agree. I, I think that it's a messaging gap, and messaging. Uh, you know, it, it's almost like the, you know, the, the age old question of well, what use is personas in marketing? Like really, really, what does it give us in terms of uh, something? And, and I think of personas as um, to me, it's the hypothetical person sitting across the table from me that I'm talking to. So then it becomes a messaging exercise of how do I make my cause relevant for a younger generation? I'll tell you a little bit about a, a, an organization that's in the veteran space called the Institute for Veterans and Military Families. It's based out of Syracuse University. Uh, it's an organization that is, you know, some 13 or so years uh, old. They've got a very strong corporate uh, um, and foundation program in terms of their fundraising. In the last couple of years, they've uh, worked to grow an individual uh, giving program. Their alignment tends to be with younger uh, younger donors. So really in the Gen X space. And a part of that is because as you alluded to earlier, people entering into their prime years, but it's also because those people through the messaging that IBMF uses, see their peers being the beneficiary of the actual donations that they make. And so there's this, there's this really beautiful connection of the message reason uh, reaching an audience and then aligning with and understanding uh, that purpose. It's very similar to, uh, you can look at uh, across the myriad of child sponsor organizations, how they have considered the role of purpose in how they message to younger generations so that they're penetrating a millennial audience and a younger Gen X audience or even an older Gen X audience. Uh, sometimes your messaging needs to look slightly different in channels. We know that as marketers, right? And so understanding your audience, then aligning your channel and then aligning your message is, uh, is the name of the game with this. And it's something that's reiterated by the findings of the study. I think it also speaks to the importance moving forward of uh, being in as many places as you can be, because uh, clearly, the direct mail space has been um, a growth engine for um, veteran services, reaching out to older donors, people who have affinity with 
um, the World War II generation, um, whether it's they're actually from that generation or the the children of that generation. Um, but I think about myself. Um, I was uh, 18 years old uh, when I started college, and I started college uh, four days before 9/11. And I can personally tell you, I know a dozen people who went into the service. Um, either right before or right after 9-11. So it's not as if, uh, especially younger Gen Xers, it's not as if they don't have a connection to uh, beneficiaries, as you, was, as you were saying. Um, and, and to me, it just it seems like maybe a, a missed opportunity not to move away from direct mail, but just to look for different ways um, to reach people who maybe are off of the direct mail grid, which, which is a, a separate question I wanted to pick your brain about. Um, you know, if you're an organization who feels like you are missing an opportunity. So I, I think about myself again. Um, I think we're, we're our own best anecdotal case studies, right? Um, right. I work in this industry. Um, I don't know that there's a direct mail donor list that you could find me on because I typically don't respond through the mail. I may get something, I go online, respond through text messaging, I look up things organically, but I can tell you that if I got a compelling mail piece or something that I had affinity to that connected me with, I absolutely would take the time to read it. Um, for organizations or or sectors that may feel like they are, they have a gap missing with younger Gen Xers, let's leave millennials off to the side for the moment. Right. Do you have any advice from your experience about what the best way is to uh, seek out people who may not be available through um, conventional uh, conventional donor lists. Yeah, so um, I was told once by a, a kind of an industry icon, channels don't die, they evolve, right? And so direct mail is the channel. It's in the midst of an evolution. And, and look at in the last year and a half, as a result of the pandemic, how you know mail feels different now now here's the thing the beauty of direct mail is the tactile element of it the way that you communicate with that i do believe has evolved over the last year and, and even further i would challenge organizations to think that if they are using direct mail to target gen x that the tactics that they use within their mail package may need to look different in uh, and how they're connecting based off of the data that they have about that audience. And so let's, for the purposes of connecting the study, we'll talk about it through three lenses, younger Gen X, older Gen X, and boomers. Within many organizations, um, control acquisition package, they may use things like uh, labels as a, a way to connect with their donors and they have a strong response rate. They have probably seen a surge in response rate over the last year. I think that that's a, a wonderful mechanism for acquiring donors. My challenge to many organizations is to consider the younger the donor, how relevant are labels as a mechanism for connecting them to their mission. It may be, and it may work very well that you can mail deeper into your file by deeper, I mean younger into your file and use labels as a way of acquiring. It may also be that as opposed to labels, there may be some very compelling inserts that you use for younger donors that deepen the connection to the mission. There's a, a health-based cause that uh, we work with that uh, 
their primary focus is on vision related diseases. And there's a brilliant piece of creative that, uh, that our team has created that's a, a, an insert that shows you the impact of macular degeneration and what that does to your vision in an insert. So you can hold it up over your eyes and see how your vision is limited by the disease. Now, again, anecdotal, the testing it and the data would likely prove me wrong. But for my money, as me as a donor, I'm going to be more drawn to connecting through uh, a device that I interact with like an insert versus a device that I interact with like a label only because I don't use labels as an after the fact. So, so that's one example of, of the way that I think that the channels evolve uh, over, you know, how you connect through audiences. The other thing that I'll say just to, well, just, to Justin, that's, channel, that goes back to, that's, that's the cultural, uh, those are the cultural references we were talking about earlier. It's like sending a phone card to somebody who remembers the pay phone. But if you sent it to a millennial today, they probably wouldn't know what to do with it. For sure. What, what is this thing? Right? <laughs> Sorry. I didn't yeah, mean to I, interrupt I, you no, there. No, 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 you're spot on. So, um, do, when you think about the younger Gen X, uh, we're, I mean, you and I both have our phones within arm's reach right now, right? And, and especially over the course of the last year and a half, we have seen the QR code as a mechanism have a, a tremendous resurgence and, and the, the most relevancy it's ever had in Western marketing. And so, again, uh, and this is maybe this is a free test idea for uh, nonprofits that are listening out there, but I'm curious the role that QR codes could play within direct mail reply devices for younger potential donors. Because I'm like you, I, I receive quite a bit of mail. And, and actually, you know, my, my kids have causes that, they've, uh, that they support to where we receive mail and my name and it's for various causes or something like that. And, and they love getting the letter because they're, they're young. They want to see the letter and hold it and they feel like they're getting the attention of it. But, but I see that as, you know, for a younger donor or even a younger Gen X donor like myself, man, the ease of being able to, to see the letter, to see the impact, to read the newsletter, and then to take my phone and scan a QR code that takes me immediately to a mobile-ready donation form for me to use PayPal or Apple Pay to make another gift. How seamless that is, how it reiterates my investment in the mission and the way that it uses traditional channels to do so is, uh, is a place that we're already entering into and it's being heightened by, uh, by the pandemic, I believe. I like the way that you approach this because, uh, and again, there's obviously, there's a lot of different ways, especially when you're talking about younger donors uh, to reach them and engage with them and be relevant with them. But if you're looking at it from a perspective of direct mail, I think um, the the theme here is that we're not talking about um, throwing out the baby with the bathwater. You have a model that works for what is right now your target donors. If you want to go after younger donors or donors that you currently think may have an affinity uh, that you're not having success with, it may warrant a different approach in the mail. I am very excited about the concept of QR codes and mail pieces for younger Gen X millennial donors. I think about myself, I, I guarantee you I'm much more likely to use the QR code to go ahead and make a conversion if I get a compelling mail piece than I am to write a check if I can find my checkbook and put it in the mail. It's just it's it's just a cultural thing. Um, uh, from a list standpoint, 
I know that a lot of organizations will say that well, we don't have access to lists with uh, younger Gen X uh, donors. I don't necessarily think that's true anymore. For one thing, um, the, the list industry has come a long way with uh, the ability to target based on demographics, psychographics, all kinds of things where you can layer on and find high affinity donors at scale in these younger groups. One angle that I've been thinking about is that all of the co-ops, take your pick, are so big and so inclusive now that I think they're sitting on a wealth of information of these younger donors that may be buried deeper in their models. And uh, because, like I said, I have no idea where I would rank in in a, mo in a model. I know that intuitively I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a good prospect to mail an offer to uh, for something that is a, high, is a high affinity offer, but I have no idea where I would rank in, in a co-op. But I think that they're sitting on a lot of very viable prospects that maybe are deeper. And uh, I know we have some co-op listeners. So if anybody wants to put together a test case based on uh, this interview, I, I think there's a real opportunity for co-ops to develop Gen X models with people that maybe are currently being lost to the, to the traditional strategy but I, to your point, I think that needs to be accompanied by a different strategy, whether it's a different type of conversion with QR codes. Um, I think uh, younger Gen Xers are expecting a multi-channel experience, are more, um, are, are, are more responsive to a multi-channel experience. I mean, the latest data I heard from the consumer world is that the average consumer needs 20 interactions with the brand before they make a conversion. I would wager a ton that that number grows as you get younger down the scale. So I think then if you're talking about layering direct mail with social media or um, or video ads or SMS, that that's a different approach. So I, th that's what I'm, I'm trying to drive home is that I think these people are reachable. They are out there. There's more data than ever, but um, it, it probably does require a different approach um, but getting back to the beginning of our study, if you look at the income um, and as well as the giving habits of these younger Gen X donors, I, I think it's a worthwhile investment, especially if you're looking at it through the prism of lifetime value. Without a doubt, it is. And, and it's, it's not limited to direct mail. And direct mail is, uh, is the workhorse that is not going to stop working anytime soon. It is going to evolve. It has evolved. It will continue to evolve. And so I would just challenge uh, the, the nonprofit space to be an active part of helping that evolution within your own, uh, within your own space. I mean, it, Dan, it, it, it's really no different than the surge of personalization that we've seen over the last five to seven to 10 years with digital printing, right? And so the more personalized you make something, Generally, the more that someone connects with it, the more they're the more likely they are to respond to it. Uh, and so now you combine that personalization with maybe a better user experience. And now we're taking things from the digital landscape and applying them to, you know, offline uh, like direct mail. What the direct mail user experience is for uh, those younger donors. It's one of the reasons why you see a, a prominence of mid-level donors in that older Gen X group. I believe is because of the user experience in our mid-level pieces are far more needy 
like they they have great weight to them. We, you know, when when we're sending uh, things that show purpose, that show impact, that show uh, that have personalized folders attached to them and business cards of people that they can reach out to. Uh, yes, you're talking to an audience that's in, uh, you know, some of its prime earning years. And so they have uh, a likelihood of giving larger gifts, but it's also the way that we're talking to them helps facilitate that. And so I think that there are things that we're doing that, uh, that if we think about taking the best of one channel and mirroring it with the best of another channel, we can enhance both of them together, right? Which is to your point about the multi-channel experience. And, and just as, as I'm thinking about it in real time, um, I, I, if you're looking at it from a direct mail standpoint, these names are out there. It's just a matter of finding them and refining them and layering over the right data. I mean, just about everybody, as we all know, just about everybody in the United States is reachable at this point um, if, you can, if you could find them in a database. Uh, but I I. You know, I, it's interesting because even thinking back to when I started the industry, uh, which is almost 15 years ago now, um, you know, the way that you would find high affinity donors is you'd look for lists with people that have uh, a similar transaction in the last 12 or six months. And that makes a lot of sense for those older generations because so many gave through traditional means. But your data makes it very clear. Gen Xers are generous. They are giving. And in my opinion, if somebody has given to three GoFundMes, that is not going to show up in any kind of list select. It's not. But those people are demonstrating giving behaviors. To me, those are high quality charitable prospects that are in a favorable income and education demographic. And, and it's just a matter of, of finding them and creating a customized experience with their, they're going to respond to. You, you can't, you know, we've already talked a lot in this interview about how different these generations and sub-generations are. You can't necessarily expect the same thing to work for a 75-year-old as going to work for a 40-year-old. Well, and Dan, I think that it's, it's a good segue into a data point further down in the study about reasons for giving or not giving. So overall, purpose is the top reason, right? That totally makes sense. That's, that is the reason why we give is it, it helps us define who we are and it helps give us a greater purpose because we are innately wired, I believe, to help. And so we are contributing to something because we believe that we are helping. We're helping solve a problem, so on and so forth. When you get into the generational look at why you give or don't give, older Gen X and baby boomers are very interested in a traditional model where they're making a contribution and then seeing the impact reports come in, uh, and continuing a conversation that way. Younger Gen Xers, along with millennials, but younger Gen X in particular, is far more impacted by influence. So they, not only do they, they hold purpose at a high standard, they also are impacted by seeing those around them either express need or contribute to need. So you mentioned that someone might give to three GoFundMe. Why did they give to those three GoFundMes? Because someone in their sphere of influence or their community had a need. They saw the need, which was an offer to support. They contributed. That's the same emotive model that we use for nonprofit marketing. Express the need, show how the support makes a difference, and then make the ask. And so it, it, to me, it speaks to 
you're right. From a co-op perspective, it might be, you know, you, you might not be able to align GoFundMe support into your, your list selects. But when you get into the use of social as a, a channel, uh, and when you start to test various messaging, to consider the role of influence in younger gen, younger gen X as something that creates social pressure or helps them align more with the community around them of other supporters. Makes a lot of sense. And I, I know there are co-ops and databases who are uh, starting to incorporate things like online activity and, and social behavior. And, and I agree, that's something very valuable to look at. It'll look at connectivity and, and, and uh, people who are engaging in activism online. Um, you know, it, it, it's all, I, I think my, my reason for digging deeper into, into this is that I, I, I appreciate all of the work that you have done, done here. And I, and I think, um, I think what we're both saying is that um, if you want to act on it, it, there is work involved, but I, I, I don't want to speak for you, but I think it's, it's reachable to find uh, these younger donors who have an affinity, who are active, that have big social spheres online. All of the data is there. It may need to come from different sources, may need to do some little extra legwork. Um, we may, from the list perspective, we may need to reinvent the wheel a little bit, but um, I, I wouldn't look at this for any type of organization or any type of cause and say that we can't reach those people because I, from my own personal experience, I, I know that they're out there. Um, I, you, you touched on on motivation. I, I uh, wanted to um, really quick touch on uh, the donor response by source appeal. And again, if uh, you are following along uh, at home, we're about halfway down the, the study here. If not, I, I can't encourage you enough to go download uh, the RKD group uh, study, uh, maybe even re-listen to the interview and follow along with us because the visuals are, are really easy to understand and they just, they say a lot to you very quickly. And um, I have a few thoughts. Um, from my own perspective on who's responding to what sources. But first I would like to get your feedback and what you took away from the findings. Yeah, um, so in terms of the, you know, the, the things that stood out to me about response by source appeal is first, it does not tell us the 19 touches, just to borrow from what you mentioned earlier, prior to, right? So we're looking at the, the last touch. Uh, of this. And we're looking at the last touch based off of what someone answered in a survey. So all of that needs to characterize how we interpret the data. Uh, the, the things though, that to me, that I elevated in my own understanding and, and dissecting of the data, as we talked about as a team, was the importance of screens in decisions. And so, and again, keep in mind, this survey was fielded prior to we were all locked down and, and the, you had the massive increase in streaming that happened over the course of the last year and a half, right? But that said, the, the greatest consistency, right, of area where, where you saw response by source appeal was a nonprofit's website. So the... So primary takeaway for me, and again, I'm kind of a digital first nonprofit marketer is your website is your best asset. So for every nonprofit, do, 
focus on as an ongoing effort, increasing the user experience, understanding the choke points, making it as seamless and sticky as possible for people to navigate your website and do a couple of things. One, understand who the heck you are. Second, where you work and what that work means, because that gets into purpose, which was the number one motivation for giving. And then third, make it easy to be a part of the work. And that means giving, right? It means giving of your time, yes. Uh, but it also means giving financially. Make it easy for people to come alongside you and donate because it is the most consistent across all generational looks as, uh, as you know, a way in which people respond. Now, the, the second thing that I'll say, and I, I mentioned screens as the thing that stood out to me is, is uh, this is not to diminish uh, direct mail because as we've noted already early in the conversation, how important, crucial, and, uh, and how much of a foundational element for strong direct marketing that that is. The, the value of screens in how people give cannot be understated. So screens include your phone. It includes your tablet device or laptop device or whatever sort of computer. <laughs> I guess they're all computers at this point. Uh, it includes your TV, right? And, and the role that TV plays, especially over the course of the last year and a half, the role that connected TV plays in terms of being able to show display ads and again, use QR codes and things like that to create a dynamic experience. Uh, social media, the role that that plays and the amount of scrolling that takes place across all of our uh, generations in Facebook. And so to me, that's the thing that just stood out of, wow, let's not diminish what a digital experience means. And it doesn't mean just email or display or social media. Uh, yeah. And um, I mean, I'll, I'll take it one step further than that. I, I was amazed at the parity between the generation um, with some of these uh, with some of these formats. Um, if you look at uh, donor response by email appeal, relatively even, uh, even first heard about on TV, relatively even the donor uh, nonprofits website uh, almost dead even between the four different groups. And I I think uh, what that tells me is that. Um, we have to be careful about not making assumptions about who does what based on their age, because things are, um, I think things were already becoming um, very muddied, but even more so during the pandemic. I mean, you have people who are in their 80s who are now buying groceries online and having them delivered to their house. They weren't doing that before the pandemic. So a lot of these behaviors are very fluid and they're coming together. But um, to your point, uh, I think the emphasis needs to be on the journey and not just how the donor converts, but how they got there. Um, you know, I wonder sometimes with this, and maybe you, you have, have a little, uh, could give us a little more insight about how donors respond to this information, but I kind of wonder sometimes when somebody says that I responded to something because I saw an email, because I heard about it on TV, you know, what got their interest? Where did they actually make the donation? How do they interpret the question? But the point is, is that you have to take all those variables into account if you're going to optimize your donor experience. Um, from a direct mail standpoint, I look at the nonprofit's website and I see the parity there. And again, it's an intuitive guess. I think it's a good guess. I think a lot of that activity from boomers 
and older Gen Xers are coming from people who are getting their mail pieces and going online. What does that mean? It means that if you work in direct mail, it means you need to be in lockstep with the department or the companies who are controlling Google search, uh, landing page, and, and actually go through that experience and see what is it like if you go from the mail piece to the website? Is it continuous? Is it using the same type of themes, messaging? Should you have customized URLs? Um, and actually doing the matchback and, and putting numbers to it. And uh, I, I have a feeling that those numbers, if, if most organizations who have robust direct mail programs looked at how many people are going online making a donation after they got a mail piece, they would be stunned. And this is not about taking credit or uh, attributing things from one channel to another. Um, I, I, I think we're on the same page here that that's a good mindset to get out of at this point because these behaviors are so fluid. It just shows how interdependent these things are on each other. And, and, and I think your findings really drive that home because there are so many cha uh, channels where there are, there's relative parity between the generations and how they utilize them. Yeah, and, and you hit it on the head, man, in terms of saying the journey. Let me give you two quick anecdotes uh, that I think support the, the data that, that you see here. Um, so one is from my, my parents. So I've got parents that are on the upper end of the boomer side. And, uh, and so they recently had, we had a friend of the family who was, uh, diagnosed, uh, with ALS. And, and so they're seeing content, they're doing research on content tied to ALS. They're seeing a friend through social media ask for support and do kind of homegrown fundraisers and things like that. And so their mindset is all of a sudden very in tune with ALS. And so then, you know, whenever they see based off of the amount of ALS research that they've looked at, content that they've looked at and organizations that they've looked at all online, by the way, they're seeing more display ads. <laughs> they're seeing things come up in predictive search that's tied to it that they're seeing all of these different mechanisms of channels that are now influencing them and they're coming to me and saying hey what do you know about this organization like what what do you think about this one versus this one which and so it it's it's a uh it's it's not at the expense of any one channel right they all work together for the donor's journey the other the other other anecdote i was going to share with you was um, we were talking before we started recording, we both recently went on a vacation and uh, as a part of our vacation, we did a, a road trip from Texas down into Florida and we stopped uh, halfway in New Orleans. We, that's a kind of a common stopping point for our, our family of four and, uh, and my wife and I decided that while we were there, we wanted to do a tour of an organization that we support that's based in New Orleans. This organization is one that my son selected for us to support based off of um, some past trips there uh, to New Orleans, but we've never been on site, right? So while we were on site, not only did we get to see the programs and kind of touch the organization in a very different way, but because they're smart marketers, immediately afterwards, you know, they you know, wanted to make sure that we were connected with them on social media and that sort of stuff. And so now all of a sudden, every time that organization has a post come up in my feed, I spend a little more time. Well, every time I spend a little bit more time because they're smart in terms of their media placements, they're understanding that Justin is a better prospect for additional guests, better prospect, better prospect. And so all of that data feeds into 
their relevance as an organization hitting me in a different way in terms of when they make an ask. So all of that comes in together. To your point, it's not about the expense of any one channel. And attribution never should be. It's about understanding how all of those channels play in together and impact organizations' ability to connect with prospective donors. Absolutely. I've learned a lot from you and others about the importance that display ads can play in the journey. And depending on your perspective, you know, a lot of times we think of, well, banner ads, banner blindness, no one pays attention to banner ads. But even if they're not driving revenue, they're impacting your awareness and your journey and um, that's something that I've started to take a much bigger interest in. Um, I do also want to mention there are some distinguishing characteristics between the generations, of course. It looks like younger Gen Xers do more discovery um, online and through social media. So maybe for that group, that should be, uh, you, you, you could use more of a top and bottom of the funnel focus uh, on those platforms for them. So there are some distinguishing characteristics, of course. Um, but there's also a surprising amount of parity um, on the direct mail front. Uh, older Gen Xers, baby boomers, very close on direct mail. So again, that's a red flag. If you're not getting those older Gen Xers, uh, they're out there. You're just not messaging to them. And, and younger Gen Xers also responsive to it as well. I also personally very bullish, uh, as we talked about earlier, about uh, the prospect for millennials in direct mail, maybe just with a different delivery device. Um, how are you in time? I'm good. Okay. Um, I'll skip down here to the top reasons for giving. Uh, there were a couple takeaways there. Um, believe in the cause across generation. That's that's the uh, that's the paramount that donors uh, who give they want to believe in the cause. Um, but there were some really interesting distinguishing characteristics here that I found, and I think this goes back to some of our conversation earlier. Um, making financial impact. Um, there's a big split between older Gen Xers and younger Gen Xers and, of course, baby boomers. The older donors are very focused on making a financial impact with the organizations that they give to. The younger donors, not so much. Um, was, was there anything from your findings that um, yeah. could shed some light on that? You know, it, it validated some discourse that we've had around plan giving and you know even to um, uh, something that you mentioned earlier about the the how your age impacts your behavior and how your behavior impacts the way that you connect with those around you and so uh, older donors looking for ways to to establish a legacy right uh and and looking at things like even you know donor advised funds as a mechanism for that sort of a giving so to me, my, my interpretation of the findings around making a financial impact are tied to what I believe are the survey respondents interpretation of what does financial impact mean and, and it being a legacy based gift, right, something that will live longer than I do. And, you know, it, it makes sense to me that the younger Gen X isn't thinking about that as much as the older Gen X and, uh, and Boomer. So we're talking about immediate short-term impact versus longer-term uh, impact of a, of a legacy gift. That ma makes yeah. a lot of sense. Um, I, I mean, the the believe in the cause, um, as 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 we mentioned, um, it resonated across the generations. But as I looked at some of these different categories, uh, getting exclusive content. Um, ranks relatively well for baby boomers, older Gen Xers, uh, dedicated service line, um, 
baby boomers fold, folds off. Uh, Member-only benefits um, falls off after baby boomers. So um, a lot of times when we talk about value proposition, we talk about um, offering value to the donor and access to the donor as a tangible value proposition for them making a gift. And, and it's fairly well established that these are important things for the uh, quote unquote traditional uh, direct response donors, whether they're uh, direct mail or digital. But it really seems like as the donors get younger that that stuff is not as important to them. And it really kind of comes down to, is it the personal connection to the cause? Is it the constant, the immediate and constant impact that their gift is making? What do you see within the data of what's driving the motivation of not just younger donors to give, but to continue giving to go organizations? Yeah, so it's the, so the self-reported top reason for giving so it doesn't mean that it's not a reason, right? So important distinction, a lot of times whenever people take research, they can have um, research blindness <laughs> towards different elements. So as a top reason for giving, you're right. Things like exclusive content and member-only benefits were less relevant for Gen X overall than they were compared to boomers. It doesn't mean that exclusive content doesn't have a place in the giving journey for Gen X means it's just not as important as increasing the reach of the org, right? Increasing reach has far greater importance among younger donors, younger than boomer donors, than it does for boomers themselves. So as you think about messaging and you think about what that means, and I heard one of my peers recently talk about, uh, you know, the impact of, of pretty awesome uh, appeal that, uh, you know, how the results came in and were really overwhelmed and so gracious for the partnership with the organization. And he said, you know what this means is it's, um, it's one more bed available for someone to sleep in tonight instead of having to sleep on the, the street. And he's putting it into his own terms, but what that means is he's talking about, man, this is the increase of the reach of the organization. And so, that fills my cup in hearing it as a younger Gen X donor. And I think that that's the sort of thing that we sometimes miss and don't quite capture in the way that we look at and connect with donors uh, at scale. The top reasons for not giving, of course, equally relevant. Um, uh, the couple things that jump out to me right away is that there's parity over uh, and, and it, High, relatively high ranking across all generations, few attempts to report results. So I think that's a red flag, something that is well documented within the industry, the importance of keeping uh, your donors uh, posted on the impact that their gift is making. Uh, that is something that transcends across generations. And if you don't do that, that could certainly contribute to attrition. Um, the red flag to me, um, again, from a direct mail perspective, spend too much time asking for gifts. Uh, now, what's interesting about this is that um, is a huge spike with boomers, uh, 83%. Um, and then it falls off uh, from there with the younger generations, uh, which is interesting because the boomers are the ones who, of course, are getting the most direct mail. And I always am kind of curious about this when I hear feedback like this. Is it that they're getting too much mail or is it that the mail is not relevant enough? Is it not telling them what they want to hear? But to me, that that's a red flag that that's a perception with donors when they stop giving. And this, the other reason why this feedback is so valuable is that most donors don't tell you why they stop giving to you. Yeah. So this yeah. gives you a little bit of insight 
but th that's the perception from donors that uh, that stop giving is that they're being asked too much. I take that also as yes, maybe they're being asked too much, but they're also not getting enough value, relevant information, and and maybe that's a call to rethink the way to rethink our cultivation strategies, um, particularly with direct mail, where we're potentially hit, uh, hitting them up every month. Yeah, I I, I don't want to be naive. Um... I kind of wanted to throw this out <laughs> and not include, because here's the thing is that um, I would classify myself as sales adverse. Like I, I, I don't want to be sold. I don't, but I, I got to tell you, I love to buy, right? Like, and, and I want my buying experience to be really easy. And so those things there's tension in between them. And, and I think that anytime that you ask someone um, things or, or, you know, about whether or not they're getting too much mail, they're always going to say yes. I don't think that's a reason to cut the mail that any nonprofit's doing. I think it's a reason to look at what they're saying, when they're sending, and reconsider maybe it's testing a package in a certain you know, mail slot, that's a different package. That's a different creative treatment, not removing the package because we also know inherently we're not going to get if we don't ask. So as a marketer, you have to, you have to process this stuff and not jump to, oh man, you got to, you know, cut back from 18 to 12. No, no, that's not necessarily it. It's, it's about relevance, not necessarily the number uh, of touches, or at least that's the way that I, I want to interpret the data because I believe that it's important that we stay in front of people. If not, you're not going to be as deeply connected with them. Well, to me, it goes, not, sorry, Justin, go ahead. Well, I was just saying, if you're not deeply connected with them, then the, the lifetime value is certainly going to start to fall off. Well, to me, it goes hand in hand with few attempts to report results that um, you're asking too much, too often. That's the perception of the donor, and you're not reporting impact. You're not delivering value. Maybe you're not um, telling stories. And 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 actually, to me, it's a call to maybe try to incorporate different types of mail. Whether you're talking about more uh, often uh, sending uh, gratitude packages, just postcards thanking the donor for their support, or adding a print newsletter. A lot of organizations moved away from print newsletters during the digitization of everything. And I think that was a big mistake because it's an opportunity to deliver value um, to the donor in a way where they're going to pay attention to it for long periods of time and be leaned in. Um, and, and a lot of organizations moved away from print newsletters because of the cost. I think that, uh, you know, that that's, that's a mistake. So to me, it's, it's, I, I agree. I hope the reaction to this is not we need to mail less because I think if yeah. you just pull back and mail donors less often, but you don't start delivering a better experience, you're not going to get better results. And 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 to your earlier point, that's the danger in sometimes taking these results too literal and not digging deeper beneath their root causes. Um, and before you start making changes to your program, um, I, I also I, I think. A, a, something else here that really kind of stuck out to me was um, the big difference between older Gen X and younger Gen X in um, saying that the organizations that they support treat symptoms, not problems. Um, and Gen X is basically straight aligned with millennials on that. So 
this is, to me, it goes back to understanding who your donors are, what's important to them, um, bringing back the important importance of things like donor feedback and understanding what drives a donation. And if you're an organization who does have younger, uh, primarily younger donors, um, this is, to me, they're saying they want you to talk not just about um, feeding the hungry or clothing and, and providing shelter to the homeless, they want you to be addressing the root and systemic causes of those things as well. And that's something that's important to this uh, younger generation of donors. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. Uh, it's not lost on me that um, it's, there is a, a, a an idea that, you know what, if, uh, if, some nonprofits ultimately went out of business. Let me say it that way. Is that a bad thing? Now, before people knee-jerk respond to that statement, no, no, what I mean is to the extent that you cure cancer, that's incredible, right? Like if, if, if you're able to do something so world-changing and transformational as to solve the problem that your mission is, is working to solve, that's a really, really good thing. And so that's where I, I interpret this treat symptoms, not problems, is that you really got to continue to grind to focus on ways to talk about how you're addressing the problem. And I think there's also a place for addressing the symptoms along with addressing the problem. Just don't lose sight of the problem itself. Absolutely. Um... I actually see us moving into a space here where I think there's there's going to be an opportunity for expansion of of nonprofit services. Um, I, I think in the future we're going to have uh, nonprofit organizations that focus on root and systemic causes and nonprofit organizations that focus on immediate relief. Um, I look at another data point in here is um, organization lost sight of mission. And uh, the boomers are off the chart in that category, 89%. Now, we don't know exactly why they said that. But um, to me, when, when you're in a climate where understandably organizations are moving more in the direction of addressing systemic causes and talking about things like social justice, and you have organizations that are talking more about these things than they would have in the past, there potentially is a class of donors that's going to be turned off by that and stop giving. It's just the reality. I'm not saying it's a good thing, a bad thing. Um, just um, empirically, it, it's true. And, and, and I see this data as, as kind of uh, at least making a supporting case for that. And I think it just kind of goes back to understanding who your donors are. And if you're going to move in this direction, and maybe it's warranted, and there could be uh, a trade-off on the other side, where younger donors are going to invest more in your cause because you're talking about root causes. Um, but understanding who your donors are and the fact that there could be a trade-off for moving in this direction and at least being prepared and having that conversation. Every organization has to make their own decision about how they want to address these um, important issues. Um, but it is important to understand who your donors are and what's important to them. And, and that's why I think uh, repeating a point from earlier, why it is more critical than ever to have an understanding of not just who your donors are, demographics, but why they're giving, what's important for them. So you might be able to to see 
what may cause them to stop giving and, and maybe how you can bridge that gap and get around that as well. But it's clear, at least from, from the findings of these studies, that there is a significant percentage of boomers that feel that organizations they were supporting are moving away from what they perceive to be their core mission. Yeah, mission drift and, and mission drift can come in so many forms. It can come in a bad uh, and, and poorly constructed creative, right? So uh, one of my uh, longtime colleagues, you know, think of him as the king of the offer because he, he inherently can, can look at a package and talk about where someone is putting themselves in the way of the offer. And the offer is the problem that you're trying to solve. And so sometimes mission drift can also mean that your creative is so much self-talk that you forget about or you minimize talking about the problem and the role that the donor plays in solving the problem, right? And if you're doing that too much, you're drifting away from who you are and you're, you're only talking about yourself. And sometimes that means you're getting caught up in talking about numbers too much, right? And so... Uh, there, there is a uh, there is a, a proper way to take this as a, a data point and and then help it really saturate into the way that you think strategically uh, about how you're constructing your marketing messages and and asking yourself does this marketing message focus so much on us that we're losing sight of the problem that we're trying to solve uh, does this marketing message focus so much on us that that we're losing sight of the role that uh, that Mrs. Donor plays in what we're trying to solve. And if those answers are yes, then you really need to rethink how you're talking to those donors because you might be creating a scenario where they, they don't understand who you are uh, and therefore they're far less likely to support who you are. Um, and as we, we go through here, you guys have a lot of great and interesting data here about... Um, the outlook on life, the difference between the generational attitudes. Um, were there any top level takeaways or, or anything um, in particular that jumped out to you from these findings? Yeah. Um, so again, referencing back to Josh McQueen and something that I learned from him long ago is that there's a pendulum around generations. And typically the generation that follows swings the other way. Like that's the best way to think of it. And so if you, if you consider it that way, silent generation, then you would swing the pendulum to baby boomers. And you can think back at the social revolution of the, you know, the 60s, totally makes sense. You saw, you know, the, this pendulum swing in terms of the way that people were responding and what they were interested in and the, the impact that they wanted to make. And then you know what happened? Swung back the other way with Gen X. Alex P. Keaton is the best example of this. Like you look at Alex P. Keaton as a character from the, the 80s sitcom Family Ties. And the brilliance of it is that he's, a, he's a, a Reagan Republican whose parents are hippies, right? And so there's this clash and this conflict. Well, well, that's because the pendulum swung back the other way in many ways on the outlook on life for Gen X. And then the pendulum swings back again whenever it comes to millennials. So Millennials and boomers have a lot in common. They really do. Gen X and the silent generation also have a tremendous amount in common, which to me as a marketer makes me think about, okay, well, what does this mean in terms of what do I already know about Gen Z and, and their come up into the marketplace? And what can I learn from things that we did with 
Silent Gen and with Gen X to apply to that next group down the line. Um, a, a quick tidbit that I, I, I pulled out of um, Gen, Gen Xers don't agree with the perception of them is the percentage of millennials and Gen Xers that like to read about generational differences. And also this is a really fascinating question. Um, even though I am the same age, I do not identify with my generation's description in the media. So, and, and that um, uh, the highest ranking were both groups of Gen Xers. So it tells me that Gen Xers are interested in reading um, language, which is customized to them that talks about their value that talks about their work at work ethic and that there's value in, in testing a different approach and a different letter and different language um, in how you talk to these younger generation uh, younger donors and that they very may well be receptive to it um, because maybe they don't like how they're portrayed or they don't want to be addressed the same way that you're addressing baby boomers they have different they have different sensibilities different cultural values Different values, absolutely. Um, culture, um, culture and diversity. I think uh, a lot of this and it speaks for itself that if you're talking about younger donors, you also have to be in the mindset of um, appealing towards um, diverse donors and figuring out how to um, message message to them um, in, in a way. If you if you want to increase the diversity of your donors, and I, I kind of look at uh, appealing to younger donors and um, diversifying your donor file as being one and the same, just because of the demographics when you start getting into donors below the age of 40. Any quick thoughts on that for organizations yeah. that see an opportunity there and maybe anything from your experience about how organizations are going about um, messaging two different types of, uh, of ethnicities? Yeah, I, I, I'll boil it down to, and this is, I'm, I'm gonna rip it straight from the study. <laughs> Those under 45 are coming to terms with a more pluralistic society in America and they're engaging more fully with its impact, right? To me, it, that, that's enough said on that, that impact. Now, what does that mean for nonprofits? I don't know. Every nonprofit has to figure it out for themselves. It, do it in a way that doesn't drift away from your mission, but understand the role that that plays in the mindset of those that you're talking to because it could have an impact. And as we prepare to wrap things up, um, getting through uh, this fantastic study, which is uh, chock full of not just great information, but uh, things which uh, things which can produce actionable changes for programs. Um, going back to the beginning of our conversation, we were talking about uh, veteran causes and uh, the d demographic differences in, in who is uh, supporting veteran causes. And I look at the um, the data here on on attitudes towards patriotism. And, and I think that's really important um, because there are sectors, um, I know historical preservation, um, you see a lot of this, um, veteran causes, you see a lot of this, where because of the demographics they've had success with, um, they have uh, a lot of success using language which overlaps with messaging um, stylistically and also uh, just Lang uh, linguistically with what we see in the conservative marketplace. There's a lot of um, themes of American ex exceptionalism and patriotism and, and, and things of that nature. And um, understandably, because it's, it's, it's successful and it appeals to donors in that traditional generation. And, and this occurred to me for organizations who are, are kind of in that 
category where um, it is advantageous for them to take a patriotic angle is that younger donors may have an affinity for your cause. Uh, again, I talked about, I have no doubt that generation X donors have a strong affinity for veteran causes because they know so many people who saw, served on the war on terror. But it could be that those donors care more about um, the individual impact and the story than they do about the themes of American exceptionalism. And I, and I think that's important to, to weigh if you're in a category where there are benefits to going in that direction. We're not saying that one is good or bad. It's just that different generations, different types of donors may require a different approach. Yeah, I mean, the, the context around that really, really matters. And, and you know, the, as you mentioned, the patriotism being strongest amongst boomers, well, from the, the demographics that we're, uh, that we're looking at from the, the study, that's the oldest group. And so as you age, there are times where your points of view change, right? And so it, it also does not mean that those veteran causes won't increase in their, uh, their connection to younger donors. Now, as you said, it could be that the connection point needs to come through a peer-based approach, telling the stories of the, the lives that have been, been impacted by the mission and cause. It, it also could mean that as donors age, as millennials get a little older, as, as Gen X gets a little older, as they settle a little more, that they further um, ground themselves in some American exceptionalism or patriotism. It could be, who, who knows? That's looking ahead and, and out of mind in your pay grade in terms of what crystal balls we have to look uh, in right now. But I think that it's, it's just important to consider context, right? Consider context, not just of the study, but how the study impacts strategic decisions that you're making and would encourage folks to consider how, uh, how belief also should be weighed against other data points. And there's a tremendous amount of information in the study about beliefs that should be added to our understanding of demographics as we market to these different age groups. Right, and it's just it just drives home that you could have two people who support the identical cause, the identical organization for very different reasons. And um, I, I think getting to the, core of that is, is a big part of what's going to drive fundraising into the future. Well, Justin, we really appreciate you being so generous with your time and, and walking through uh, this really phenomenal report that RKD Group has approached. Um, as we prepare to wrap things up, um, are there any final takeaways or broader themes that you would like um, organizations and fundraisers to take away who are or digging into uh, this report that you guys have produced? Well, Dan, I just appreciate so much the chance to to talk about it. And, and like I said at the outset, it's been a, a pet project that uh, that our team has has worked hard on, and we've had a lot of fun doing it. And and that is the the meta aspect of being uh, connected so deeply to the nostalgia of some of the, the aspects and the cultural references and, and whatnot. The you know the study tells us so much about generational differences. Uh, what we did not do intentionally was prescribe what it means for nonprofit decision makers. And, uh, and I got to tell you, as strategists, that's somewhat hard 
because we want to solve problems and, uh, and, and make suggestions. But I think that that's where every organization has to look at themselves and look at how they're evolving, how they've evolved over the pandemic, how they're coming out of the pandemic and, uh, and how they've evolved and how they're connecting with their donors. And we strongly believe that this generational research can be a component of weighing into more fully realized strategies across different channels for organizations going forward. And so we're, we're just, frankly, we're proud to be able to put out into the space and, and have people respond to it so favorably. Well, I mean, um, I think you're going to generate a lot of conversation, a lot of deeper level thought, and, and I admire um, you all for taking that attitude of not prescribing solutions, because you're right, it is so individualistic based on the organization, based on who your donors are, based on your funding situation. Like The takeaway from this should not be, uh, if you're a veteran service organization or historical preservation, stop using patriotic language. It should be, think about how you can measure differently, uh, message differently to different donors who may have affinity because uh, ultimately uh, the fundraising is about cobbling all these different approaches together um, and, and moving away from uh, the uniform approach, which I think traditionally has, has dominated fundraising. Um, Justin, you um, are the host of the Group Thinkers podcast. I always enjoy talking to you. I think you're one of the most interesting thought leaders in the business, and you always are very forward thinking, um, related or unrelated to the study. Is there anything on your mind uh, right now that you think the fundraising industry needs to be talking about or should be talking about? As, uh, uh, I mean, we've we've touched on quite a bit, haven't we? Like we've <laughs> we've talked about the the emergence of, of uh, the reemergence of QR codes or the emergence of it. We talked about the role that different screens play, and you know, uh, you and I have been in the space uh, roughly the same amount of time, and and we've seen um, a new era of fundraising, and and I just think that uh, I think it does us all well to consider the potential that the last year is ushering in another new era of fundraising. And I think that's really exciting. It doesn't mean that it's easy. In fact, it's probably really, really hard at the beginning of a new era, uh, you know, to understand how channels are changing and how behavior is changing and what role different screens have. And, uh, and, and then the, you know, the bounce back of people going from being locked down to all of a sudden everyone wants to be in person. How does face-to-face -face play into it? Man, we're just in such an exciting time for uh, philanthropy and for fundraising. And so, you know, um, I hope that the, uh, the, the listeners consider that and, and take that to help fuel and motivate and encourage them in terms of where, wherever they are. And, you know, like I said, at the outset, it's, it's just, it's always so fun to chat with you. We have a, uh, we have a great conversation here and, and excited for our next one. Uh, absolutely. And fundraising as always is, is going to be a moving target and ever changing. Um, if listeners would like to get to know more about you or your work at RKD group, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Yeah. So rkdgroup.com is our hub. Uh, that's where you can connect and find episodes of Group Thinkers, as Dan mentioned. Uh, you can also, you can always find me on LinkedIn. Uh, and so um, Justin McCord, you can easily search for that at RKD Group. Uh, those are the two easiest ways. And uh, yeah, look forward to, to hearing from listeners. 
Great. Well, we'll link to all of your information in the show notes. Justin, thank you again for uh, being so generous with your time and all the great information and the fantastic discussion today. It's always a pleasure. You as well, Dan. Thank you.